Today's video was recorded on June 7, 2023. Today's lesson is the fifth and final in our series covering Redemption and Covenant. And all of this is part of a larger set of teachings that we're calling Bible 101, really exploring the foundational aspects of our Bible. And this lesson today moves us to the New Testament and Jesus. Jesus is the final covenant mediator. We started with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, Moses, David, and finally, Jesus. It's through the blood of Jesus that we enter the new covenant, and that's our covenant relationship with God. In today's lesson, we explore another metaphor that's used to help us understand God's plan of redemption, and that metaphor is a marriage. And once we understand the cultural symbolism that surrounds marriage, well, you'll see this throughout the Bible, and it's quite a powerful metaphor to help us understand God's desired relationship with us. So just a quick reminder, we have a number of PDFs that you can download. These will help you solidify the concepts of covenant and redemption that we've been teaching on. So if you haven't already done so, make sure you go download them. They're posted at our website, and you can find links to them directly below in the show notes. We are so grateful you've chosen to spend your time with us today. Your support and continued viewership mean the world to us. And as a nonprofit ministry, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to keep the ministry going. Your financial contributions enable us to focus on bringing you high-quality Bible lessons. So donations cover all of our ongoing expenses, and they ensure that we can continue to deliver valuable teachings that help you see deeper into the Bible. Now, we understand that not everyone can contribute financially, and that's completely okay. If you're unable to donate at the moment, there are other ways to support us. Simply sharing these lessons with your friends and family or engaging with us on social media goes a long way in helping us reach more people. If you are in a position to support us financially, we would be incredibly grateful. No amount is too small, and every donation helps us continue creating the content you love. Now, we've included a link in the show notes below, and that'll take you directly to our donate page. To all of our current financial supporters, you know who you are. We give you a shout out for all of your generosity. We couldn't do this without you. So we hope you enjoy this lesson on the metaphor of marriage that helps us understand God's plan of redemption and how we, as the bride of Christ, await the return of our bridegroom to take us to be with him for eternity. Just to reiterate for the video, Bible 101 is the series. We're talking about God's plan of redemption. He's going to redeem the world. We're going to look at another metaphor of redemption. But he redeems the world through a series of covenants. And of course, all of us are entering into that relationship with God through the new covenant. So tonight, that's where we're going to end is Jesus and the new covenant. And then what we want to do is look at the metaphor of marriage, and I'll get there in a minute. Now, this painting that I chose for the background tonight, this is, it's a Flemish painter, so I probably will not pronounce his name right, but Jan van Eyck. It was uh, completed in 1432 in the city of Ghent, which I probably didn't say correct, like a someone in Belgium would, but this is in their, one of the church cathedrals, 
and it's part of the altarpiece. And this one is called the Adoration of the Lamb. And now, of course, the painting is drawing out of the book of Revelation. And that's what we're going to end with tonight, is the marriage of the Lamb. So this is a great painting for us to think about this idea of marriage and redemption. So I'll go through a number of these metaphors that we've talked about. But one last one that comes into the New Testament very strongly, I think, if we know what to look for, is the idea of marriage. So redemption, there's a marriage metaphor. Okay, so number one on your sheet, we're going to talk about some of the metaphors that we've seen when it comes to this plan of redemption. And remember, redemption is God wants to dwell with his people in the same place. Eden, presence of God, people of God, sacred location, Garden of Eden. But they sin. Now you're exiled out. What's the plan? We're going to come back together. Presence of God, people of God, place of God. It goes from the tabernacle, it goes to the temple, it goes to Jesus tabernacling among us, and one day the new, well, the new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven will be the final redemption. That's the picture that we have in the book of Revelation. But it's always in metaphor, and so one of the things that's important is to remember that we use metaphors. God uses metaphors to communicate. Turns out, God can be difficult for humans to comprehend. So, so we use metaphors to help us understand that. So now I did this in week one. An interesting book about metaphors. This was written in 1980. Uh, it's called The Metaphors We Live By. And it's dense about metaphors. So if you're not interested in reading the entire thing about metaphors, you could go to the library and read the first few chapters. But at least you would catch some of the You'll start immediately in the first few chapters, you'll say, oh, those metaphors are in the Bible. I get it. Up is God. Up is good. Up is order. Down is chaos. Down is the devil. It's the up and down. We live that way. And we live inside of a metaphor and we communicate truths through these metaphors. So um, their definition, it says the essence of a metaphor is understanding and experiencing one kind of thing in terms of another. So it's not just, hey, I understand it intellectually, I experience it. So you can talk about God in a marriage and then experience God in that metaphor as well. So it's both understanding, but it's experiencing too. And uh, it's important we often forget that when the Bible writers, both Old Testament and New, because New Testament is still that first century Jewish culture, when they use the word to know, it's not intellectual knowing like we think about today. It's experiential knowing. So that you will know is experiential, much more than intellectual. So, okay. Now, what are we knowing? Well, we're knowing one kind of thing in terms of another. Right now, it shouldn't be surprising, should not be surprising to us that God, the concept of God, is difficult. Right? We have an unlimited, infinite God, and us human beings have all kinds of limitations. Right? How can the finite, 
How can we comprehend the, the infinite? Well, we can't. And that's everybody quotes Isaiah. Uh, you know, my your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. But that's so true in in so many ways. So, but I think there's something here that when we use metaphors, there's some part of us because some part of us is infinite that will live on, and that's through our spiritual nature that we comprehend and commune with the spiritual infinite God. And so one thing to consider is, you know, Jesus Jesus tells something like 40 different parables, depending on how you count. Well, 13 of them are all about the kingdom of God. Now, why do you need 13 parables about the kingdom of God? Isn't one parable enough? And the answer is no. Turns out the kingdom of God is a difficult concept. And so each parable explores some aspect of or characteristic of the kingdom of God. Okay, so we use these metaphors, right? So we're going to say, we're going we're gonna to experience one kind of thing, say God or redemption, through in terms of another, meaning something that we know, right? So when we talk about God, we use metaphors. God is like a father. Now, we would say God is a father, but it's God is like a father because he's also like a judge. Now, he's a just judge, and he's also like a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's like a king. He's a good king. And you take all of these qualities, characteristics that come out of father, judge, shepherd, king, and many others. He's like a rock. He's very stable, right? There's stability in his promises. So all of those metaphors help us understand something about God. They're all correspondences that give us a view of one aspect of God that we can experience then. So they're very powerful. Metaphors are, they're important to us as human beings. We use them without even knowing that we're using them. And the whole idea of redemption then, as what we're talking about, is communicated through metaphor. And it's those cultural metaphors that we've been looking at. So now this diagram I'm going to put on the screen is a little bit different than on your sheet because I was wrestling with, you know, how, to, how do you present these ideas? Because you have this concept of redemption. It's not just a definition. Redemption is a concept. We experience redemption in real life. It's not just abstract. And so we talked about this concept of redemption. And so sometimes we just have to circle the concept. One thing we noted, that covenant, right? That's what we've been looking at is that's how the, the plan of redemption is, is being executed. So he communicates his promises to us and the, God's relationship to us is communicated through covenant goes right along with redemption. Last week, we talked about exile from the land. So we can all metaphorically think, oh, wait a minute, I'm exiled from some land. That's metaphor, right? Adam and Eve were exiled from the land of Eden, and that was literally happened. But now I experience redemption abstractly. But I can still understand, oh, I was exiled because of sin. Well, now I have to be, have my sins forgiven to come back into the dwelling space, the sacred space of God. So we did that last week. We've talked Father's house. That's a picture of redemption. We got caught out. 
of the Father's house, how are we going to get back in to the Father's house? So God, God as a Father, He's a redeeming Father. He redeems through a family member, namely His His eldest son or firstborn son. And He sends the firstborn son out so that He'll bring the family member back into that household. So the Father's house, that's a metaphor that culturally exists in the in the east. And then tonight we're going to hit on one more and again it comes out of that eastern culture and this one is marriage. And so what were the customs of an Israelite wedding in that first century? And we'll see marriage when we did the book of Exodus we noticed that marriage is a prominent theme through the idea of redemption. And it goes right into that to the New Testament. So God is like a husband, and he's going to bring us into relationship in a very intimate way. So this is another way to, to understand the plan of redemption or even experience the plan of redemption. Okay, so that's my little diagram. That's a very dynamic diagram, even though it's in two dimensions right there. But really, we experience it very uh, dynamically. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, so where do we get this idea, right? Where do we get this idea of marriage and redemption? Because isn't the Father's house good enough? Isn't exile from the land good enough? And so the first thing we, we can note is the Jewish people, even today and back in Jesus' day and prior to that, saw the book of Exodus as a wedding ceremony, at least the first step in a two-step process for marriage. But it's a wedding between God, is the bridegroom, and Israel is the bride. You might say, well, where do they get that idea? Because it's not explicit. But everything in, within Judaism, particularly first century Judaism, comes right out of the Bible, but sometimes we can't see it. It might be in a Hebrew word. It might be in a, a very small detail that, we, that doesn't stand out to us, but it's always in, in the text. So we're going to look at the main text for redemption and notice that there's something about marriage tacked onto it, and it comes from Exodus chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 6. We've done this before, but it's such an important passage that every time you review it, you know, God can reveal more and more about what he's doing, or even your own walk with God, how you may have experienced, just like the Israelites, you know, kind of being dragged out of your old life, but then now being in a much uh, warmer relationship with God. All right, so Exodus 6, it's verses 6 and 7. An important passage within Judaism and, oh, by the way, the Passover. And we'll see that in a minute. Now, my slide comes a little bit later, but just so you know, these are called the four expressions of redemption. Okay, so I'm just going to read along here, starting in verse 6. 
So God's talking to Moses. He says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So the first one we have is bring you out. That's one expression of redemption. Next, I'll free you from being slaves to them. There's your second one. I'll free you. I'll deliver you. Sometimes, maybe your Bible says deliver. Then he says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And so this redeem you. Now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of redemption. And then it says, and I will take you to be as my own people and I will be your God. So you have, I will take you. Now, after all of that, I bring you out, I free you, I redeem you, I take you, and you're experiencing all of this, not just doctrinally, it's experienced in life. Then it says this, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So they know experientially, not just because they have a definition. So the four of them, I bring you out, I'll free you. I'll redeem you, and I'll take you. Okay, and as I mentioned, those are called the four expressions of redemption. Now, it's always difficult because we're reading it in English, and we don't really think about what's the difference between take you out and deliver you and redeem you and, you know. But each Hebrew word has a nuance to it. So, it starts out, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm just going to say these Hebrew words, it's yatsah, you don't need to know them, but I just want you to get the, the gist of it. I'm going to bring you out. There's not much there in way of, like, relationship, like a, a rescuing. I'm going to rescue you, that's natsal. But it's not like God could rescue anybody, but it doesn't, doesn't imply relationship. But as we get further down, now we get into relationship. I'm going to redeem you. Ga'al. And this is the Redeemer, like the kinsman Redeemer. This has to do with the Father's house. This is the common idea of redemption. This is the familial redemption. The kinsman Redeemer. It's Ruth and Boaz. Right? It's the son who's set, sent out of his Father's house to redeem that which is lost. That's Gaal. So we're getting more intimate. And then finally, the last one, I will take you, Lakak, is actually a word for marriage. We'll see it's used in Hosea. Hosea, take for yourself a wife. Oh, by the way, take for yourself a promiscuous woman as a wife. So it's that take, it's a marriage. So you can see what's happening is. You're getting more intimate as you go down that list. And now we see we have Father's house, there's one of our metaphors, and there's marriage. And so they both exist in, this, uh, in these four expressions of redemption. Now, you wouldn't know that, though, if you're just looking at the, your English Bible, because, well, I mean, that's just one of the hard parts of having to dig through the, the English and go back to the Hebrew. Now, these for expressions, oh, I should say this. When God says he wants to dwell with his people, it's the intimacy of a husband and wife. That's how closely God wants to dwell. In fact, 
When Jesus says in the New, in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is near, that word near, it's the near as the intimacy of a husband and wife. It's not like, well, it's a couple feet away. It's that near. And oh, by the way, that, that word near, to come near, it's the same word we looked at last week. It's translated often as offering. It's how you approach God. How do you come near to God? It's often offering or a sacrifice. So it's that type of intimacy. Um, okay. Now, these four expressions of redemption then go to the Passover meal. So real quick, in your pa- on, on your handout, if you go to a Passover meal, there are four cups of wine going along with the four expressions of redemption. And they go right in that order. So there's, there's one cup, two cups, and that's if you've been to a Passover meal, you have the first cup, the second cup with the meal. The meal now ends. Then you have the third cup and the fourth cup. Now you know why the disciples were so tired by the time they were done eating that meal. They had four cups of wine, then they got to go sit out in the cold Jerusalem air. So, what are these called? Well, they're just like that, what we talked about. It's the cup of sanctification or to take you out. I'll take you out of Egypt. It's the cup of deliverance. And then it's the cup of redemption and the cup of consummation, or sometimes people say completion or restoration. So these are our, these are our cups. Now, which cup then, if, we're thinking, if we go to the story of Jesus, Jesus is going to lift the cup, and he's going to say, this cup represents the covenant, the new covenant, my blood. And we want to know, which cup did he choose? Well, it's the third cup. Luke tells us, after the meal, he picks this one. Now, why does the kinsman redeemer, Jesus, pick the cup of redemption to communicate this new covenant? It's like, you can see how important knowing the holidays, knowing these metaphors, knowing the book of Exodus, because when Jesus speaks one little detail, boom, it's all about this, these huge concepts that we often leave aside, I think. So he, he's expressing that he's, gonna, he's going to be the Redeemer, and that his, his blood is going to be part of this plan of redemption, and he does it with the cup of redemption. He also says, by the way, I'm not going to drink again. Until what? Until this whole thing is consummated. So that this last cup, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink again. And that's now, it's like the consummation of a marriage um, or the completion of the marriage. We'll see in a minute that in, in Israel, marriage uh, is two steps. You have a two-step process. So Jesus says, look, I'm, gonna, I'm proposing to you guys as a marriage, and I'll be back, and we'll consummate that marriage, and we will dwell intimately like a husband and wife. Of course, all metaphor. Okay. So it's remarkable how these things are communicated should we have eyes to see. Now, let me give you just some examples. I'm going to go through them rather quick. We're only going to read one of them. You find the expression of this idea of marriage. It starts in Exodus, but you'll find it through the rest of the Bible. So I just have a list on your handout 
of some examples. You can read them uh, when you have time later. Ezekiel 16, very interesting chapter about finding Israel on the side of the road, cleaning her up, raising her up. And when she was old enough, the text says, I put my shawl around you. Now that's a marriage type thing. God's marrying Israel. That's the picture. Um, I mentioned Hosea. You can read in Hosea 1 and 2. It says, take, that's that word, lakak, take in marriage a promiscuous wife. I mean, poor Hosea. Poor Hosea has to be, he's the object lesson, right? He's the holy man and represents God who has to marry a promiscuous wife, which of course is Israel. It's like, ugh, you know, being a prophet is never fun. In, a Hose in the Hosea's case, he had to live this out. It's Israel and uh, God, Israel as the promiscuous wife who cheated on her husband. And that's the story of Hosea. You have uh, Isaiah 40, uh, 50, sorry, 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. And then the final one, and this one I do want to read. So if you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah. 2. It's Jeremiah 2, verse 2. And this is an interesting one. As God is reflecting back, they had their wedding at Mount Sinai, or at least their betrothed. Now they're going to go in their youth, and they're going to walk through the desert, maybe like a honeymoon of sorts. And so Jeremiah starts out, and he says, Thus says the Lord, I remembered the devotion of your youth. Remember, Israel, when, when you were young and you loved me, right? Your love as a bride. This is how God talks to Israel. I remembered how much you loved me and how committed you were. You followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Remember our honeymoon? Forty years in the desert. And you were committed to me the whole time. But now that you've gotten wealthy and you're in Jerusalem and you've, you're not living close to me, well, Israel, you've abandoned me as your husband. And that's the, the picture that's going on. So those are just some examples of where you find the picture of God as the groom, the bridegroom, and Israel as the bride. Of course, an unfaithful bride, a promiscuous bride. So, okay, number four, and you'll have to turn over your handout for this one. Okay, so those are the, you can, those are the examples of marriage in the Old Testament and with regard to redemption. But now we have to get to Jesus. So we're going to talk first century wedding. What were the customs? of a first century wedding. How does it help us understand our Bible when we understand a first century wedding? Okay. A Jewish wedding has two steps, two parts. And it begins with a betrothal. Now, we might say this is an engagement period, but it's much more than that in that Jewish culture. It's a betrothal. And you have a marriage contract that's signed at that initial one. And you're going to have a party and everything. 
by the way, the marriage contract that's called a ketubah. And that's going to lay out what your obligations are, just like a covenant does. Because this is a marriage covenant. It's like your vows. And you can actually read these. I did put a footnote to a website that found a number, archaeologically, they found a number of wedding contracts from the 5th century BC. This is down in Egypt. A Jewish community living at a place called Elephantine Island. And there's, you can read them. And it sounds very similar to even what people in the Middle East do today. So we're not that far away culturally. Okay, so you have a betrothal. You have a marriage contract. Now you're officially married. In the eyes of the community, you're essentially married. But you don't live together. Okay, and now right there you can say, ah, this is Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. It's an engagement period. And, oh, by the way, there's a marriage contract that says you should not sleep with other men. And then Mary is found to be pregnant. And now you have to get the angel to step in and say, well, it's okay. So you could see the, the controversy that's, that's happening uh, because there's a, there's a marriage contract. Okay, now you're going to have a period of time. It usually lasts somewhere around a year, but it's, it varies. And now you're going to get, after that one year, a wedding ceremony. So if you're the bride, well, you have to be prepared because you don't know the day or the hour that your bridegroom is coming to get you. And so if you hear the wedding party coming, what do all the prospective brides do? They have to prepare. And that's, of course, the parable that Jesus is telling. And at that point, then, now you have consummation or completion of the wedding. And now you are officially the wife will then move into the husband's father's house. Okay, and I've shown this picture a number of times. This was in Iraq, but this is a patriarchal compound. The whole family lives around that elder patriarch. And there are many rooms in that house, the father's house there. But you come together in marriage and you move into the husband's father's house. So what happens is you have two families coming together, yes? So you have one family and a son and one family and the wife, the future wife. And they're coming together. Now, legally, they're going to be bound, right? So we have mother-in-law and father-in-law because it's, you're, you're creating a legally binding relationship. And then what happens is the, the male and the female, they come together. And now they're going to go into their, what we would say, wedding vows, but they have, the, they have their marriage contract. Now, here's the thing. It's not supposed to be forced. And so it probably depends on the community, right? Some communities are more strict than others. But you're, you're supposed to allow the children to choose. Now, why? Where do we get the precedent that the children are allowed to choose the husband or the wife? And it comes out of the Bible. So we're not going to turn there. but. The story of Isaac and Rebekah. It's in Genesis 24. I put it on your sheet. You can go back and look at it. 
they go to Rebecca and say, do you want to go with him? Do you want to go be a wife? But they asked first. They said, hey, let's go find out what she thinks. So they said, do you want to go? She says, yeah, I'll go. Okay. It's just like any other covenant agreement. You can't force it, right? So she's free to answer. Now, there's another funny part to this. Within Judaism, you know how in Christians, we put a veil over the bride's face, or you're not supposed to see the bride before the wedding, especially the day of the wedding. You're not supposed to see the bride. So they keep the bride and the groom separated, and then there's a veil over the bride's face. Not in Judaism. They already got burned, right? Jacob went to go marry uh, Rachel, and who was there? Leah. He was like, oh no, this isn't going to happen again. So within Judaism, you see the bride on the day that you're getting married because you want to make sure it's the right bride. And that comes out of the text too. So Now, what are they going to do? They're going to affirm their oath, right? It's a covenant-making ceremony. And there's probably, you know, the, the families are probably making a covenant as well, and that would be a, a sacrifice and a shared meal and all of that. But the man and the woman are going to come together. They're going to affirm their covenant uh, the, the marriage contract, and they're going to do it with a cup of wine, okay? So they get a cup of wine between them. And now the male is going to say something like, you know, I'm putting my life on the line. This, what does the wine represent? Represents blood. And that's the blood of the person who's entering that contract. So there's no mandatory phrasing, but he might say, you know, like today we say, will you marry me? That's, our, that's how we go into an engagement. But he would take the cup and say something like, this cup represents my blood, my commitment to the covenant. Something similar to that. And I'm going to take a sip of this cup of wine, and that's going to say that I'm committed to this marriage of, with you. And then he would sip the wine, and then he's going to hand it to the wife, or the future wife. And what is she going to do? She's going to take the cup of shared wine, and she, if she agrees to that marriage, she takes a sip. She drinks from the cup. And she's basically saying, by taking that shared sip, I do. And once you say I do, and you have a marriage contract, you're not allowed to violate it. So, this is going to come into our Jesus story. Because when he's talking with his disciples at that Last Supper, that Passover meal, he's going to share a cup of wine. He's going to use language that sounds like a wedding. And they're going to say, what's going on here? Why is he suddenly using marriage language? And that's going to affect how do we view our Lord's Supper, our Eucharist ceremony, that ritual that we do? So, what happens then? If she says yes, she sips from the cup, now they're going to get married. The party begins, and now the engagement period begins. Well, for how long? We don't know. What does the bridegroom have to do? Well, he has to go prepare a place for his future wife. He has to prepare a room in the father's house. This is what the son is doing. And who's in charge of when that room is ready? It's not the son. It's the father. 
So you could say that nobody knows the day or the hour this is going to be prepared. That the, the father will send the son to go get his bride. And this is, you can see how these metaphors are so powerfully used in the New Testament. So you have an engagement period. One day the father will say, yes, everything's ready. Go get your bride. And then you go have the, re the rest of that wedding. Okay, so if you look at number seven, I just want to go through most of these we know, but there's some verses that help you understand that, we're in, that they're engaging in a marriage metaphor. Now, I'm just going to read the first one in the interest of time because we did this last week. But Matthew 26, 28, uh, we did this last week with Moses because Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. Now, that not only reflects back to Moses and the covenant-making ceremony there at the base of Mount Sinai, where he says, this is the blood of the covenant, but it also reflects what's happening because he's picking up a glass of wine and he's saying, this is my blood. And it's just like what would happen at a marriage ceremony. And so you've got two of the metaphors crossing over, but everybody can see what's going on. The Moses part, I'm sure they've got. The wedding part might have been a little bit confusing. Okay, and then for this one, turn in Luke. It's 22.20. I just want you to see this one. So Luke 22.20 is, uh, well, it's probably in your Bible, titled The Last Supper, but it is the Passover meal. I think some. Some Bibles have updated that. So this is when Jesus is going to take the cup after the meal. Verse 20, likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten. That's how you know which Passover cup you're on. You're on that third cup, which is the cup of redemption. And then saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And again, what you have the mixture of is not only reflecting back to Moses at the base of Mount Sinai, but also to this wedding ceremony, which they'll see in a minute. I'll show you the, in, in, a, in a minute the verses in John that are prominent marriage verses, but they would get it. They would hear what's going on with a shared cup of wine. Okay, now, what does this mean then? For our Eucharist, because I think this is one of the most powerful things. When we think about our Lord's Supper, what are we doing? Now, it's a communion, right? We're supposed to be coming together with our Lord, but in, a se in what sense, right? Now, there's the, there's the idea of you ingest, you're ingesting the blood, you're ingesting the flesh. That's the transubstantiation, and that, that ingestion is part of the transformation of ingesting mystically Jesus, and that's going to help you transform. But the Eucharist, when we think about the Eucharist, you have this cup of wine. It represents the blood of the covenant. And so each time we take that, the symbolism is prominently something to do with a covenant, right? So first of all, I would say that if we look backwards to Moses, like we did last week, you take that cup. And you're saying yes to the covenant all over again. It's a covenant ratification reaffirmation. If you did it once, if you did it a hundred times, it doesn't matter. Part of that is saying yes 
to that covenant ratification ceremony. That's what the blood represents if we look backwards to Moses, or even to Abraham's sacrifice. But the other part, when we think about the wedding language, what does, what's the wife, what is she communicating to her future husband when she sips out of a shared cup? I do. What, what are we saying to Jesus? Yes, we're reaffirming our wedding vows once again, Jesus. I want to be the, again, metaphor, I'm going to be the bride, you're the bridegroom. And you're offering your hand in marriage covenant, and I say, I do, by sipping that cup. And you cannot violate that covenant with other gods. Part of the metaphor. And there will be a day when we will intimately dwell with our Lord. He will come back to get the bride. Okay. So I think there's some real powerful imagery going on with what we do with that Lord's Supper. Uh, and anyways, hopefully that helps when you think about what's going on uh, with that cup of wine and what was going on with Jesus. Okay, last two things then. So turn to the book of John. It's in John 14. I want to look at some of the symbolism of marriage. So John 14. Now, if you're following along in John, they just had the Passover meal. He offers the cup. This represents my blood. It's a shared cup. That's also the wedding language. So then he turns around in John 14, and he immediately adds more wedding language, right? So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the believe there, some of your Bibles might say trust. It's not believe that we exist. It's trust. Have confidence. Right? When I tell you I'm coming, I'm going to come back and get you, have faith. Have confidence that that is going to actually happen. Right? So let your hearts not be troubled. Why are you guys worried? Why do we worry? Right? Verse 2. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go prepare a place for you? Now that's right there out of that wedding language. And they're like, whoa, what's happening right now? Right? And if I go, verse 3, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you. It's exactly what God says in Exodus. And that's the marriage language. I'll take you to myself, and where I am, you will be also. And so you can see that intimacy happening. Now, look at verse four, uh, look in chapter 14, look at verse 13, I'm sorry, John 14, look at verse 23. This reflects redemption. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, now we is Jesus and the Father, will come to him and we will make our home with him. That, that's the ending of Exodus. That's the indwelling that is going to happen with redemption. It's all over the pages of our Bible if we have eyes to see. Okay, and then the last one, I think you guys know this. I'll just do it real quick. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but now the new Jerusalem 
I'm going to show you, the angel says, the bride, right? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it says, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so what, the picture that we, John sees there in his vision in heaven is now the consummation of the marriage, the coming together of all things. You're out of exile. You're back into the new Jerusalem. You're back into the Father's house. It's all the metaphors are coming back together in that uh, picture of what's happening in Revelation. Okay, uh, so what did we talk about? Well, it's redemption metaphors. Uh, father's house, exile, marriage, there's others, but those are prominent ones. They help us understand what God is doing. And if we have faith, which is like trust or confidence, then we walk today with the confidence that what God said is going to happen will happen. And so you don't have to worry. Why worry, Jesus says. Okay. Four expressions of redemption. We saw that in Exodus, right there in the beginning of their redemption story. And then that gets moved into the Passover and that third cup of wine. Well, that's the cup of redemption. So Jesus is certainly going to take hold of that one and help communicate what's happening at that meal. And then we have to know something about first century wedding customs. What were the customs of the day that help us understand? the way that the Bible is communicating this plan of redemption. There's Eucharist symbolism that I think sometimes we miss, and maybe we could revitalize this ceremony, this ritual, and think about our covenant, our recommitment to the covenant, our recommitment to our wedding vows. And then, of course, one day the bride of the Lamb is going to, when, when the Father finally says, go get your bride, and the whole cosmos comes back into the new Jerusalem. So, okay, that is redemption now in a little bit different view, a marriage metaphor. But I think, oh man, you can see how intensely. And you know, God wants this. When does this going to start? When can the process of redemption start? Right now. God wants to save you, not only forgive your sins of the past, he wants to save you from the sins of the current age, right? transform you out of whatever ways that you were stuck in, because he wants to dwell with you right now, intimately. And it's available. And I think somewhere, you know, maybe after the scientific revolution or the industrial revolution or whatever, you know, the, the enlightenment period, where suddenly everybody kind of conceived of God as being way out there in space, and there's nothing in space, it's just dark, empty, you know, God's somewhere up there. He gave the world a spin and said, okay, you guys figure it out. I'll be up here. And we tend to think that God is so distant, but that's not what the Bible is communicating. So he's, he's here right now available. That's what's so powerful when people can tell stories about how God is acting right now, because it shows you, even when we don't see it every day, that God is concerned and acting in our lives.